Amen. If you have your copy of God's Word, I hope and pray that you do. Turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. We're going to finish our study of verses 5 through 11. If you do not have a copy of God's Word in the pew rack in front of you, you'll find a copy, and you can find today's passage on page 1010. All right, page 1010. I'd encourage you to just join us there. And so just as a recap, remember last week we looked at verses 5 through 7, and specifically we looked at one, the deity of Christ. We dove into the Word of God, and we saw that, that Jesus is God, right? And then we also looked at the humanity of Christ, and we understood from Scripture that Jesus is man, this mysterious, um, miraculous union between deity and humanity, that He is the God-man, all right? Now we're going to look this morning at the humiliation of Christ and the exaltation of Christ. And so let's read these verses together, beginning in verse 5, Philippians chapter 2, and we'll read through verse 11. Paul admonishes us in this way, adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited or something to be taken advantage of. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross." For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Christ Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Heavenly Father, thank you for another day that you've given us, another day of life. Thank you for waking us up this morning, Lord, and, and giving us a breath in our lungs. Thank you for the privilege we have to come and to gather here as the body of Christ and to study your word, to sing your praises, and to fellowship uh, with our family. Lord God, uh, please don't ever let us take this opportunity for granted. And now, Lord, as we dive into your word, your eternal, inspired, inerrant, powerful word, Lord God, grab hold of every heart and every mind and draw us close to Jesus today. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. And amen. So you're following along there uh, on the back side there of the bulletin. You want to take notes. Here's the first thing we see in verse 8 the humiliation of Christ. The humiliation of Christ. I, I want to share with you a quote from James Montgomery Boyce, a wonderful preacher, a wonderful teacher of God's Word, a wonderful theologian. Uh, that that he's makes, he makes this statement in reference to verses 5 through 11. And I want, you, I want to just share this with you uh, this morning. And I quote, Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, has been called the great parabola of Scripture. It pictures the descent of Jesus Christ from the highest position in the universe down to his death on the cross, and it carries the mind of the reader back up to see him seated once again at the right hand of the Father. Philippians 2 verse 8 deals with the lowest point on that curve, for it deals with Christ's death, end quote. That's kind of what we see. If you'll remember from your algebra or your calculus class when you studied parabolas and those formulas, right? 
It's a curve there on that X, Y axis or graph there. And so we see this here. We see Christ in his eternity. We see him high and lifted up. Then we see him descend to the lowest point, his death. And then we're going to see him exalted back again to that highest point. What does it mean when the Bible says he humbled himself? In the original language, that means to lower oneself. It refers to the act of self-abasement. You see, the Bible says here that Jesus humbled himself to the point of death, but not just any death. What do we read here? Even to death on a cross. Well, why did Paul include that? Why didn't Paul just say he humbled himself by becoming obedient um, to the point of death? And end it there. Why the emphasis on death on a cross? I mean, after all, death is death, right? So why the emphasis of a cross? Well, uh, number one, the cross stands as the focal point of the Christian faith. I, I would argue without the cross, the Bible is impossible to understand. The message of salvation is an empty hope without the cross. You see, the cross is the central theme of the New Testament. Let me just give you an example as to how we know that. Interestingly, the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, devote an unusually large portion of their narrative of the, of the birth and the life and the ministry of Christ to the final week of his, of his life. He lived for 33 years, and the majority of the Gospels centers around the final seven days of his life, which culminated with what? The cross and then the resurrection. Let let me just share with you these numbers. Two-fifths of the gospel of Matthew is devoted to the final seven days of Jesus' life. Three-fifths of the gospel of Mark is devoted to that final week. One-third of Luke's gospel is devoted to the final week. And nearly one-half of John's gospel is devoted to the final week of Jesus' life. Why? Because the cross is the hour for which Jesus came and the moment that all his life and ministry pointed. Everything was about the cross. The cradle was about the cross. His childhood was about the cross. His public ministry was about the cross. The cross is also, I would argue, the central theme of the Old Testament. You you say, how so? Well, one Think about this. Every Old Testament sacrifice foreshadows the suffering of the Messiah, foreshadows the cross. Every daily sacrifice, every special uh, um, celebration sacrifice, every sacrifice on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, every sacrifice foreshadowed when that unblemished Lamb of God would die for the sins of the people. The cross also perfectly aligns with the explicit prophecy of every Old Testament prophet. How do we know that? Well, Jesus taught, his, uh, ta- taught those two disciples on the road to Emmaus that truth. L- let me remind you of the context. So Jesus has been crucified. He was buried and he's risen from the dead. And all of his followers, not just his 12 most intimate, but all of his disciples are a little bewildered. They're a little confused. They're a little shell-shocked. They're not really sure what's next for them and for anything else. And so two of these disciples decide they're going to travel from Jerusalem to Emmaus. It's about an 11-mile journey or so, give or take. 
And so they're walking along this path. The, res- the risen Jesus re- uh, um, shows up and begins to journey with them. Now, he hasn't revealed his glory to them, and so they just think he's just a stranger on, the, on his way to Emmaus. And so they begin talking about all the events that have happened over the past few days. You know, and they're talking about the, 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 um, the, 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 the arrest of Jesus and the betrayal of Judas. And they're talking about the trials and they're talking about the crucifixion. And they're talking about this, this rumor that's going around that he's risen from the dead. And, and, and Jesus is kind of playing this part. Well, tell me more about it. I don't really understand it. And I don't understand what all you're saying. And so they're talking. And finally, listen to what we read in Luke chapter 24, beginning in verse 25. Here's what we read. Jesus says, How foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Wasn't it necessary for the Messiah to suffer these things and enter into his glory? In other words, Jesus says, Don't you understand what the prophets have said? That They told us these things would happen. Then we read this. Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted for them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. So think about that for just a moment. Jesus began with Moses. That means he began with Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, and he walked through the entirety of the Old Testament all the way to Malachi. Because the New Testament had not been compiled yet. So he takes the entirety of the Old Testament and Jesus says, let me just share with you what God's Word says. And beginning with Moses and walking through every prophet, he reminds them what the prophets have spoken, that the Messiah would come and that he would suffer and that he would die for the sins of the people. Can you imagine that conversation? Can you imagine what it was like walking to Emmaus and listening to the very Word of God speak the truth of God right there in your ear, and you're listening, and you're hearing this truth? And Jesus says, let me just tell you, remind you, what do the Scriptures say? You see, the cross is a major theme of the entirety of Scripture, from Genesis to Revelation, the cross. The ESV Study Bible shares this commentary on the cross, and I I thought it was so poignant and powerful, I wanted to share it with you. And I quote, Crucifixion was not simply a convenient way of executing prisoners. It was the ultimate indignity, a public statement by Rome that the crucified one was beyond contempt. The excruciating physical pain was magnified by the degradation and humiliation No other form of death, no matter how prolonged or physically agonizing, could match crucifixion as an absolute destruction of the person. It was the ultimate counterpoint to the divine majesty of the preexistent Christ, and thus was the ultimate expression of Christ's obedience to the Father. The, the, The line that grabbed hold to me was, Nothing could match crucifixion as an absolute destruction of the person. Not just the physical person, but the emotional, the spiritual, the the dignity, the worth of a human being was destroyed on a Roman cross. Let me just try to walk you through that experience as best as I can. 
Crucifixion was widely believed to be the worst form of execution, not only as a result of the excruciating physical pain, but the public humiliation. The, the, the naked body of the guilty would be flogged first, and flogged almost to the point of death, and then that naked body would be nailed to a cross with metal spikes. They'd take one metal spike and they would nail it right between the two bones of your forearm here, just above your wrist. And then they'd take a third metal spike and with your feet, one on top of the other would nail it through both feet. And then you would be hung on that cross and your legs would be slightly bent and your hands would be above your head. And, and over time, your breathing would be labored and difficult. And so in order to take a full breath, you'd have to push up on those legs that are with a nail, that are with, a, with a metal spike through them. And you'd get your breath, and you'd catch your breath, and then you would relax back down to ease the pain and the pressure. And over time, the medical community believes that you would ultimately die from asphyxiation. You would just choke. You, would, you wouldn't be able to breathe along with the cumulative effects of just the shock and the trauma of the flogging and the hanging and the beating. It was not unusual for the victim to, to take more than one day to die, to just hang in, in pain and, and in agony for multiple days until their body finally gave out. Nor was it unusual for the Romans to leave the dead body on the cross for several days. And as it would begin to de decompose, meat-eating birds would just come and perch themselves on the body and just pick the flesh of the deceased. It was the worst form of execution. It was the worst way to die in the Roman Empire. So why did Jesus suffer and die? I want to share with you three reasons this morning. This certainly is not an exhaustive list, but, but hopefully you'll, th this, will, this will be enough to grab your attention. First reason, number one, Jesus died to remove sin. He, he removed it by bearing its penalty himself. Look with me at these verses I want us to see, and I'd encourage you to just write these references down there in your notes so that you can go back and look at them later. First, first, from 1 Peter 2, verse 24, look at, look at that with me. We read this. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that, having died to sins, we might live for righteousness. Look closely at that. He himself bore our sins, not his, our sins in his body on the tree so that, having died to sins, we might live for righteousness. The second verse, look with me at 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 21, often referred to by theologians as the great exchange. Here's what we read. He, referring to God, made the one, referring to Jesus, who did not know sin. The Bible says that Jesus was sinless, that he lived a perfect, blameless, righteous, holy life, that he who did not know sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And so what did God do? God took all of our sin and all of our filth and all of our nastiness and he put it on the cross, put it on the shoulders of Christ as he hung on that cross so that you and I over here might enjoy the righteousness of Christ. He exchanged our sin for Christ's righteousness. 
Now, let me share with you a few truths the Bible teaches us as it relates to this. Number one, the Bible teaches us that our sin, that our rebellion separates man from God. It causes enmity between man and God. The Bible goes on to further teach us that as a result of our sin, as a result of our rebellion, there is a barrier between man and God. So much so, the barrier is so great that you and I can't climb over it, we can't run around it, we can't dig under it, and we can't go through it. It is a barrier so great that only God can remove that barrier. And that's exactly what the Bible teaches us, that Jesus Christ came to remove that barrier that you and I created as a result of our sin, but we can't remove. He came to remove that barrier and to reconcile us to God, to make us right with a holy and righteous God. Look with me there in your notes. The cross is the means by which our sin is removed or atoned for. And there is no other way that our sins might be atoned for. There is no other formula or method that we can find the removal of sin. The second reason Jesus died, I want to share with you this morning, is this. Jesus died to satisfy divine justice. The justice of God calls for the punishment of sin. And the punishment of sin, determined by God, set forth by God, is death. Genesis chapter 2, verse 17. Romans chapter 6, verse 23. That the punishment of our sin, the punishment of our rebellion is death. Now you may say, Pastor, I don't really like that. I don't really agree with that. I think that's an extreme punishment. It doesn't matter what we think. We don't get to set the standard. God has. And God has said the punishment of sin is death. And so, Jesus paid the penalty of our sin. Jesus died in our place as our substitute. And in doing so, he has satisfied divine justice. You see, in his death, Jesus Christ intervened on our behalf as our substitute in our place. And, and listen to this. He bore the full wrath of God against sin. Think about that for just a moment. Jesus Christ, who was sinless, bore the full wrath of God against your sin and my sin when he hung on that cross. Consequently, the Bible teaches us that any person can come to God through faith in Jesus Christ and live without the fear of experiencing God's wrath against sin. Isn't that marvelous? It's phenomenal. William Cooper articulated the meaning of the cross in this way. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. The dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day. And there may I, though vile as he, wash all my sins away. Dear dying lamb, thy precious blood shall never lose its power till all the ransomed church of God be saved to sin no more. 
Ever since by faith I saw the stream thy flowing wounds supply, redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die. Redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die. Look with me in your notes, church. The cross is the single greatest demonstration of God's wrath against our sin. When you look at the cross, I hope you see and understand God's wrath that was due our sin and that was bore by Jesus Christ. Let's keep going. The third reason I want to share with you this morning, why did Jesus die? Jesus died to reveal God's love to us. He died to reveal God's love to us. Quite interestingly, there is hardly a single verse in the Bible that speaks of God's love without also including the cross of Christ or the death of Christ. It's quite phenomenal. It's quite marvelous, really. Look look with me at these verses. Write write these verses down and just hold on to them. John 3.16, you're familiar with that. For God loved the world in this way. And so we see John speaking of God's love. For God loved the world in this way. How did he love the world? That he gave his one and only son. There's the death of Christ. So that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. God has loved us so much that he gave his one and only son for us. And if we believe in him, if we trust in him, if we surrender our life to him, we won't perish. Instead, we'll have eternal life. Let's keep going. Look with me in Romans 5 and verse 8. But God proves or God displays or God demonstrates his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Think about the the magnitude of that statement. Often, there have been many times over the years when I've shared the gospel with an individual, and and the individual responds in this manner. Pastor, listen, you, you don't know what I've done. You don't know the decisions I've made. You don't know the roads that I've traveled. My, my life is a big, hot mess. It is filthy, and it is dirty, and it is gross. I, I need to do some things to stretch. I, I need to get my ducks in a row. I need to get some things in order before I come to Christ. Friend, nothing can be further from the truth. What does it say here? That God demonstrates, that God proves, that he displays his own love for us, and that while our life was in order... That while our ducks were in a row, Christ, no. Christ died for us in the midst of our depravity, in the midst of our wickedness and our rebellion and our filth and our nastiness. Friend, you don't have to get your life in order to come to Christ. That's the whole point of the gospel. Come to Christ and let Christ transform you into the man or the woman he created you to be. He proves his love towards us. And that while we were a big, filthy mess, he died for us. Let's keep going. Look at Galatians 2 and verse 20. Read this with me. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, watch this, who loved me. What a great truth. But also what? Who gave himself for me. There's the love of God and the death of Christ all in one verse again. 
Let's keep going. Look with me at 1 John 4 and verse 10. Love consists in this, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Here's how I want to encourage you with this truth. When you look at the cross, when you think on the cross, when you consider the agony and the pain of the cross, one commentator said it this way, when you consider that Jesus tasted hell for you on the cross, know that he voluntarily and obediently died for you. Listen to this, because of his great love for you. When you look at the cross, just, just think on this truth. Jesus Christ died on that cross because he loves me. And he loves you with a love that is unconditional. He's not asking you to do anything. He loves you with a love that is unselfish, that is sacrificial, that is inexhaustible. Listen, the love of God is, is a well that is so deep that it is impossible for it to ever run dry. It'll never run low. Look with me here in your notes. Not only is the cross the single greatest demonstration of God's wrath against sin, look with me here. The cross is the single greatest demonstration of God's love for mankind. If you've ever doubted God's love for you, if you've ever wondered, does God love me, all you have to do is look at the cross. That's it. That's as far as you have to look and know that he loved me enough, that he loved me so much that he died for me. That's the humiliation of Christ. Now, look with me at verses 8 through 11. Let's look at the exaltation of Christ. What do we read here? He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Notice what we read there in verse 9. For this reason. What reason? Because Christ humbled himself and gave up his life on the cross, God raised him to life and has highly exalted him by giving him the name that is above every other name. I, I mentioned earlier that this text has been referred to as the great parabola of Scripture. Let's just look at that, right? You've got your x-axis, you've got your y-axis up here. You've got the, the eternality of Christ, his, his eternal existence at, at, at the right hand of God the Father. And then as the parabola comes down in the curve, at the very bottom of the curve, that's the lowest point, that is the death of Christ. And now in verses 9 through 11, we see the curve rising again to, to the exaltation of Christ, the highest point. There is no other name greater than the name of Jesus. There's something about that name. There's something about the name of Jesus that stands above all others. We just sang this truth. Your name is the highest. Your name is the greatest. As the hymn writer says, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. There's just something about that name. Master, Savior, Jesus. 
like the fragrance after the rain. Jesus, 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 let all heaven and earth proclaim. Kings and kingdoms will all pass away, but there's something about that name. Over the course of 2,000 years of church history, there have been some traditions that have kept Christ on the cross, and that's the entirety of their focus. There have been other traditions that have kept Christ in the cradle, and that's the entirety of their focus. Church, listen, Jesus is not a helpless victim hanging on a cross, nor is he a helpless babe lying in a manger. Jesus Christ is the living Messiah, the one seated in a place of power and authority. He is King of kings, and he is Lord of lords. God has highly exalted him. He is Lord. He is God over all, blessed forevermore. Listen carefully. As a result of his death, his resurrection, and his exaltation, what do we read in these verses? Look, Look closely. Every knee will bow. And every tongue will confess that he is Lord. Listen carefully to me. There will be no exceptions. Muhammad, and I don't say this with any arrogance, I say this with the authority of the Word of God. Muhammad will bow his knee and recognize Christ as Lord. Those who worship the Buddha will bow their knee and recognize Christ as Lord. Those who worship the 300 gods of Hinduism will bow their knee and worship Christ as Lord. Those who worship humanism and our achievements and our efforts and and so forth will bow the knee and worship Christ and recognize Christ as Lord. Now, here's the challenge, though. Okay, listen carefully. Man can willingly choose to bow the knee and confess Jesus as Lord in this life and enjoy him for all of eternity, or man can wait until the great day of God's judgment and be forced to bow the knee and confess that Jesus is Lord. But in doing so, they will suffer the eternal consequences of rejecting him in this life. And the Bible is very clear. The eternal consequences of rejecting Christ in this life is at eternity in what the Bible calls the lake of fire, also known as hell. But make no mistake about it. Every individual will bow the knee and every individual will confess that he is Lord. And we will do so. Look with me in your notes there. All of creation will acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, that he is master, that he is sovereign, and that he is savior. Listen to me, either in salvation or in judgment. But all of creation will acknowledge that he is Lord and savior. So, how do we what do we do with this text? Here's kind of how I want to wrap things up. If you are here today and you're discouraged, if you're here today and you're, you're confused or you're frightened or you're anxious about life or maybe all of the, the craziness that is happening around us, I want to encourage you this morning to look at the cross and I want you to see the, the length and the width and the height and the depth of God's love for you. 
And I want you to rest in that love. Remember, it is a love that is unconditional. It is a love that is never-ending. It is a love that is inexhaustible. It is a love that is comforting and encouraging. And so if, 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 if you are just discouraged and frightened and anxious and confused and all, listen, I want you just to rest at the foot of the cross and just embrace God's love. Find your joy there. Find your peace there. Find your satisfaction and your contentment and your fulfillment there in the love of God. If you're here today and you have never made a personal decision to follow Christ as Savior and Lord, if you walked into these doors not knowing Him as Savior, I want to challenge you this morning. I want to challenge you to look at the cross. And I want to challenge you to see the length and the width and the height and the depth of God's love for you. A love that is so amazing. Just just remember, think on this. A love that is so incredible that it led the eternal God of the universe to leave the glory of heaven, to come to this earth in the flesh of man, to walk our streets, to wear our clothes, to eat our food, to speak our language for one purpose. To die on a cross to pay the penalty of your sin and to give you the gift of eternal life. So if you're here today and you've never made a decision to surrender in faith to Christ, I want to encourage you, why not today? Why not today embrace God's love for you? Receive that gift by faith and be saved. Find forgiveness of sin and the hope of eternal life. Don't wait until the time of judgment, for then it'll be too late. Revelation chapter 20 is very clear. There's no hope for anyone after this life to find eternity with Jesus. It's now or it's never. Would you say yes to Jesus? Would you bow your knee in humility and brokenness and receive Christ as Lord and Savior? Let's pray. Father God, thank you. Thank you for the cradle. Thank you for coming to dwell among us. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for coming to die for us. Father God, thank you for redeeming us. Lord Jesus, if there is any individual in this room today, if there's any individual listening online that's never made a personal decision to follow Christ as Savior, Lord, I ask and pray that right now in this moment, You would grab hold of their heart and their mind. You would show them their sin and convince convince them of their need of a Savior and draw them to Jesus right now, Lord, right now in this place for your glory and for your honor. Father God, please don't let anyone leave this place not knowing Christ as Savior and Lord. With heads bowed and eyes closed, if you are here today and you know you've never surrendered in faith to Christ, Notice I didn't ask you if you've been raised in church, if you're familiar with Sunday school. I didn't ask you those things. But if you know you've never surrendered in faith to Jesus Christ, you've never made a personal decision, it can't be your mom or your dad's, it can't be your husband's or your wife's, it can't be your grandmother or your grandfather, it has to be yours. 
If you know you've never made that decision, friend, why not? Why not right now say yes to Jesus? Pastor, how do I do that? What's involved in that? It's a remarkably simple. Right where you're seated, just cry out and say, Lord Jesus, I believe you're God's one and only son. I believe you died on the cross to pay the penalty of my sin. I believe you rose from the dead victorious. And right now, Lord, as best as I understand this, I am surrendering my life to you. I want you to be my Lord. I want you to be my Savior and my Master. Here's my life, Lord. Take it. Mold me and make me into the person you created me to be, Lord. I want to live for your glory and for your honor. And friends, by the authority of God's Word, if you are sincere in that plea, God will indeed, has indeed saved you and redeemed you and rescued you today. And now you are his child, destined for eternity with him. Thank you, Father God, for loving us. Thank you for dying for us. Thank you for saving us and redeeming us. Be glorified, be magnified, be exalted in these final few moments we have together. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I want to invite you